Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And I'm Andrew Spias. And thanks, as always, for tuning in. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library, again, for providing us with the space to record this podcast, as well as the equipment and some of the technical help. We really appreciate working with you. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate and review us on your favorite podcasting service. Whenever you do that, it helps other people find this podcast, and there's nothing we'd like more than for more people to listen to it. We're on Google Play, TuneIn, and iTunes. Uh, Basically, anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find us. And as always, if you have any feedback or you want to request a guest, go ahead and send me an email. I'm at srichardson at cleveland.com. Again, that's srichardson at cleveland.com. This week on the show... Congressman Bill Johnson from Southeast Ohio. Now, you know, I have to say that I was originally pretty skeptical about having Bill Johnson on, but he turned into be quite the fascinating character. Why are you skeptical? I don't know. It's just you don't hear a lot about Bill Johnson. He's not exactly the biggest figure in Ohio, and there's sort of this stereotype of the southeastern Ohioan, and they're all the same. But he had some really interesting takes. We talked to him a lot about fatherhood and uh, really just a a panoply of different subjects and it was it was just interesting to hear you know that opinion it's it's so easy to boil it down into kind of a uh, a singular mindset and that's not at all what it was so as far as like preconceptions go and that kind of thing uh bill johnson wrote a book about fatherhood a few years ago and it being father's day this weekend they kind of honestly pitched him as a guest under that and that's that's totally cool we're all up for acknowledging holidays like father's day right guys absolutely um sure. <laughs> but uh, so his book is kind of like a mix of, I guess, his, his ideas about why uh, that's a, the and I don't think anybody disagrees that it's important that fathers be involved in their children's lives and that kind of thing. Um, but he has some ideas about sort of what the root causes are of maybe the degree to which that's a problem. Um, but it also goes in pretty hardcore about his his background. He's he's in very uh, impoverished circumstances growing up. His dad was kind of an outlaw, I guess you'd call it. And. Um, he, he talks in the book too about like some of the tragedy uh, that he experiences. He gets into that in the interview a little bit. And so I guess it's just always important to remember that anybody that is involved in public life, um, you kind of think you know who they are based on their biographical sketch, but people always have these kinds of like challenges and circumstances that kind of shape them and, and help inform who they are. And so I think that we do get into that uh, in the interview. And I think, you know, personally, I came out with a better understanding of, of that stuff when it comes to him. I think he's a perfect example of what we kind of set out to do when we started this podcast. It's very easy to look at any political figure, like you said, and just kind of brush them off as one-dimensional whatever. But then when you sit down and you talk with them for an hour, you find out all of this interesting info and background and uh, just this mindset that they have. And I think that's really going to come through in this episode. So... Uh, Without further ado, let's go ahead and listen to the interview that Andrew and I did with Congressman Bill Johnson. All right, Bill, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Good to be with you. Uh, Bill, you wrote a book about fatherhood, right? I did. I did. Uh, The title of the book is called Raising Fathers, and it's, uh, it's basically designed to start a national conversation. Uh, about the importance of fatherhood and, uh, and, and another um, epidemic that is streaking across America, and that is the shocking number of, uh, of children that are being raised in fatherless homes. So could you tell us what made you decide to write this book as far as you know, getting the idea and then walk us through the process of actually putting pen to paper and that kind of thing? Well, you bet. Well, uh, first of all, you know, I, I, 
I have a, a from the vantage point uh, here in Washington, D.C., in my role as uh, as U.S. representative to Ohio's 6th Congressional District, um, I, I have a perspective that uh, uh, that that spans not only my district and our state of Ohio, but the nation. And uh, and I see this playing out. I see the uh, the issues that are. Uh, that are surfacing as a result of the number of children that are being raised in fatherless homes uh, as these issues are are playing out uh, it's it's changing our society um, and and I would say it's it's not changing our society for the better I can tell you the genesis of the book uh, came from uh, two sources one my own uh, personal experiences, uh, having been raised in a uh, dysfunctional family and for the most part a fatherless home, um, and and as I reflect on my own personal life, uh, how I got from there to here, um, uh, uh, I I see uh, how critically important it is that we as a nation have a conversation about this uh, about this topic so that the millions of other children that are being raised in fatherless homes know that there is hope out there for them, that even though they have been uh, uh, hurt, traumatized, uh, feel neglected, uh, guilty perhaps uh, about their childhood, uh, that there is hope for them uh, in the future and, uh, and, and give them some ideas on how to go about pursuing that future. So, uh, one of the uh, one of the genesis of this book was my own personal experiences. Uh, another major factor was the personal experience I had uh, with my grandson. Um, uh, my uh, my oldest daughter uh, became pregnant when she was in high school uh, in her senior year. Uh, many people around her uh, tried to uh, convince her that having an abortion was the right way out. Now, she would not hear of that. She has beliefs very similar to mine, and, uh, and she decided to have the baby, and I'm certainly glad that she did. Uh, but at the same time that I was glad that she had decided to keep the baby, um, I was not a big fan of, of her uh, being involved with the birth father. Uh, the young man was uh, uh, had some very rough edges about him. Uh, uh, he had uh, dropped out of uh, school, I think, in the ninth grade. Um, and uh, uh, I just didn't see um, where uh, uh, two wrongs would make a right. So I tried to, to steer her away from that personal relationship. But she was convinced that she needed to give it a chance and not in defiance, but, uh, but, but going in a different direction than I had hoped she did. She would, she began to evaluate that relationship and over the, she didn't marry the young man right away, but, uh, but after four years, um, uh, they did get married. And I can tell you that after the baby was born in 1996, I saw a transformation occur in uh in jeff my eventual son-in-law he began to walk different he began to talk different he learned a trade started his own business 
And I grew to have a great deal of respect for him. In fact, he and I became very, very close. And then, uh, and then tragedy struck. Just a few short months after my daughter decided uh, and, and did walk down the aisle and marry Jeff in, uh, in uh, the year 2000, September of 2000, in February of 2001, Jeff and Austin both were killed in a horrific apartment fire. Jeff rescued my daughter, made her jump out of a third-story window. But, uh, but both Jeff, my son-in-law, and my four-year-old grandson, Austin, were killed. And, uh, and as I began, you know, the natural uh, questioning about why did this happen? Why did my grandson only have four years on this earth? Uh, I didn't get an answer. Uh, you know, my, I'm, faith uh, is, is the biggest part of my life. Uh, my faith is my foundation. And, and we might or might not get into some of that, but, but you just need to know that. And so as I began to ask God about that question, why he felt necessary to take my grandson and son-in-law uh, when my grandson was only four years old, I didn't get an answer right away. But over time, I began to, uh, to experience, uh, to see perhaps what, what God had seen. Because I can tell you that God showed up for my son-in-law, Jeff, through the eyes of a little baby boy named Austin. And I, be and, and I became at peace with the idea that, that Austin's role in life was to show his father, his earthly father, a pathway to becoming a man. And, uh, and I believe that's exactly what happened. So I started thinking about you know, what if, what if every, in every case where a young woman, a young lady, whether she's uh, in high school or maybe uh, later in life, every time there's a, a, a woman that, that becomes pregnant, uh, unplanned, out of wedlock, there's a young man out there that's going to be a father. And, and if they're very young, in the case of, like my daughter was, uh, many times that young man is pushed out of the circle. Her parents don't want to have anything to do with the young man because, you know, he has sort of uh, picked the flower before it is fully bloomed and, uh, and, and taken something that they think did not belong to him. Uh, and so they're angry about that. Uh, his parents in many cases, feel that, that their son has done something that now they're going to have to accept either uh, physical or, or financial responsibility for, and, uh, and they weren't prepared for that. And so oftentimes, the young men walk away. And so I thought, what if we could get to these young men through either mentorship or uh, uh, counseling or some other method and convince them that their role as fathers will prepare them for the eventualities of the pressures of life in ways that they would never imagine. And, uh, and, and the role that they would play in, in the future of the child that they have, that they have fathered uh, is such a vitally important role. So the two, the two sources of the book uh, the the uh, the influences were my own personal experience as a 
raised in a fatherless home and then losing my my uh, grandson and son-in-law in uh, in 2001. So can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Um, uh, well, so for me, I guess, speaking for myself as somebody who's born in the 1980s, uh, the level of poverty that you kind of describe in your book is, is being the conditions that you're raised under, I guess it's kind of, it sort of seems almost like another world or something like that. Well, yeah. many people probably would think it was another world, but to me, it was absolutely normal. Uh, I never, I never looked at ourselves uh, as poor, uh, but, but I can certainly understand now that we were. And um, I mean, we were so poor, we had to put more O's in the word uh, uh, because we were really, really poor. I was born and raised on a two-wheel wagon rut mule farm uh, on the cotton and tobacco fields, in the cotton and tobacco fields of eastern North Carolina. Um, we farmed with mules up until I was about 13 years old. We had no indoor plumbing. Uh, we cooked and heated on two big old black pot-bellied stoves. And uh, from my earliest remembrances, um, every day was a survival day. I do not remember a time in my life when I opened my eyes in the mornings that there wasn't a list of chores to be done, whether it was to go get water from the well or to go bring in firewood from the, from the wood pile or to take out the slot jars. Now that, uh, I don't mean to be crude or gross, but when you don't have indoor plumbing, and it's cold at night. You have these little porcelain pots uh, that that are uh, portable uh, uh, toilets that you use in the home at night. And then you have to empty and clean those things out in the mornings. And so that was one of the that was one of the chores that I had as a young child. But we grew everything we ate. We raised all the livestock, the pigs and the chickens, uh, for the protein that we ate. My grandparents would go to the store. Uh, because I was brought home from the hospital. I wasn't born in a hospital. I was born in a little makeshift clinic. Uh, a doctor had turned a house into a, uh, into a clinic, and, and that's where I was born. And uh, I was brought home to that little mule farm because my mother and dad could not afford a place on their own right away. And so uh, uh, that, that was my earliest remembrances. And, and every single day, was a survival day and right away the problems with my parents began to materialize uh you might recall in the book uh when i was i think i was roughly five years old when my mother and i were riding in the car one day and uh, uh we heard a uh, uh a news report that my father had been arrested for attempted murder because he had gotten in a fight we knew he hadn't come home, but nobody knew where he was. That was way before the days of cell phones and and uh, uh, the, and, and the internet and such. So uh, nobody knew where he was. He had not been able to make contact. And my grandparents, I don't think at that time, even had a telephone at their home. So there was no way to make a phone call. Uh, but we heard on the news that my father had been arrested for attempted murder because he had gotten in a fight. Uh, in, uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, with some soldiers from Fort Bragg the night before. Um, and so that, that began the dysfunctionality of my, of my uh, childhood. My dad was a, uh, was, struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction his entire life. And 
and he was uh, he when he was sober, he was the greatest guy that you would ever want to meet. But uh, but when he was drinking or under the influence of alcohol, he was meaner than a junkyard dog, and uh, and he would bite you in a heartbeat if you got in his way. And he didn't it didn't matter who it was that he bit. Sometimes it was me. Sometimes it was my mother. Uh, and, and that was the, that was the way we were raised. And so my mother spent more time running from my father than she did living with him. And that, that's what, that's what prompted me to have to go to 13 schools in 12 years. Um, what kind of effect did that have on you being in that environment as such a young kid? Well, you you know, I can tell you that, uh, school became my sanctuary because school was a place where I could just pretend that that life was the same for me as it was for everybody else. And so school became my sanctuary, even though I was not doing very well in school. Uh, I, I mean, I wasn't failing. I did not fail a grade, but, uh, but I struggled in school uh, from the first through the 12th grade. And much of the reason stemmed from the fact that my mother because she could not afford childcare for two children, she changed my birth certificate when I was five years old. And she started me to school at five. Uh, I should have been in kindergarten. And so I was always a year behind my classmates in terms of social development, mental development, uh, scholastic aptitude, physical development. And so it just seemed I was always just a, a, a day late and a dollar short in terms of, of fitting in. Uh, thank God uh, that he made me, uh, he created me a very uh, social kid. And so I made friends no matter where I was. And so I always found a way uh, to, uh, to survive. But I, I can tell you that, that, that the, biggest, the biggest influence, uh, the biggest influence is in my life were the many that came along the way that stood in the gap for me, recognizing the dysfunctionality in my home and and providing that fatherly role model for me. Uh, sometimes it was an uh, it was a grandfather, sometimes it was an uncle, sometimes it was a supervisor at work after I joined the Air Force. So, uh, you know, certainly up through my my teen years and my uh, and my early adult life, um, I constantly looked for uh, for role models in others uh, because I learned more about how not to be a father from my own dad than I learned how to be a good father. Um, did you read the book Hillbilly Elegy? Are you familiar with it? Yes, yes. In fact, I've met with. Uh, uh, with the author of uh, Hillbilly Elegy, and uh, we we sat down uh, uh, and and had lunch. And I told him, I said, you know, we we share a lot of similarities in our upbringing. Um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, my book is self-published. Um, his is probably a lot more refined than mine is, but but certainly uh, he and I shared a lot of. Um, a lot of very similar uh, similar traits, uh, similar experiences. Yeah, and for the listeners, so J.D. Vance wrote that book. He's an Ohio native, and he's sort of, I guess, uh, oh, yeah. ancillary to politics now. He's maybe thinking about getting involved. But basically, um, 
he also described growing up in rural poverty with a, with a dysfunctional family situation, and he developed kind of finding uh, opportunity and confidence by joining the military. Um, uh, do you think it takes something like, you know, finding a professional outlet or something like that in order for somebody to, to you know, rise up out of that kind of circumstance? I think those are the lucky ones. Um, uh, you know, I, I'll let JD speak for himself, uh, but I can tell you that, that I feel fortunate to having been, uh, to having been, uh, I, I want to say guided in that direction. Uh, remember, you know, my mother, my mother started me to school early. So I graduated from high school at 17 and, uh, and you could not get a, a job where you got a W2, uh, a, a full-time job. You couldn't get one until you were 18 years old. So when I graduated from high school in the summer of 1972, there were no jobs. Uh, because I mean, if, if there were any jobs, I couldn't have gotten one anyway. I could work, I could go cut grass somewhere. I could work part time, but I could not work full time. And so uh, 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 it wasn't until six months after I joined the Air Force. I mean, I'm sorry, six months after I graduated from high school that I decided to join the Air Force because by the time I turned 18 in November, all the jobs were gone already. All my classmates and others had taken the full-time jobs and they were hard to come by. So I, I sort of, at that particular time, saw the Air Force, a military uh, option, as, uh, as the only path to a job. And uh, boy, I tell you, uh, it grew me up and I fell under the mentorship of some great uh, leaders in the Air Force that saw something in me that I certainly did not see because it had never been uh, communicated uh, in me. And, uh, and my life began to change as a result of a military career. So what I would say in short answer to your question, I think the lucky ones, uh, those who, who uh, either stumble into or are guided into or voluntarily make that decision, um, it can certainly change the direction of their lives. They don't have to let, young people do not have to let the fact that they had a dysfunctional childhood uh, become an excuse and a reason to not pursue quality of life for themselves down the road. They can turn it around. And for many people, uh, a military career will do just that. So you described in your book the, the strain that it seemed that the, uh, your career uh, with the military kind of placed on your family, whether it was, I guess, you know, long hours and that kind of stuff. Uh, do you think that's typical that military members and their families have, have those kinds of issues? Well, I, I, I don't, I won't, yes. Um, that's the short answer, yes. Because the, uh, the expectation of our men and women in uniform, I mean, what are we there for? We are there to protect and defend uh, the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. And so um, it's a 24-hour-a-day job. It's not a job that you can, that you can let down uh, your hair, uh, uh, your, your, uh, your code of conduct, uh, your standards of performance. I know in the Air Force, the... Uh, uh, the core values in the United States Air Force, they were so ingrained to me, I can still quote them today. Integrity first, uh, uh, service before self, 
and excellence in all that we do. And, uh, and so every day, uh, uh, when I was in the Air Force, you were driven to a high standard of excellence. You didn't know was never an acceptable answer when the question of mission accomplishment came up. Uh, there was no acceptable excuse for not getting the job done. And so uh, I found out uh, uh, after I joined the Air Force that I was really a very driven uh, logical, uh, passionate uh, type of leader. And so uh, when I found that I could excel in, uh, in, in the military, I poured everything that I had into it because it was, a, it was kind of an awakening for me. And, uh, and yes, um, I, I did uh, at times um, even let my job overshadow my responsibilities as a husband and a father. And I would be the first to acknowledge that. You can't roll back the clock and change it, but, uh, but I certainly learned very valuable lessons through that, through that experience. Do you get Capital Letter? It's the must-have daily read for Statehouse Happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit cleveland.com slash capital letter. That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Did you know that one in six Northeast Ohioans struggle with hunger? Unexpected expenses, prescription costs, and rising heat costs are all things that can prevent people from being able to put food on the table, and they are forced to make difficult decisions that often result in hunger. But you can help with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. Each dollar that you donate to the Harvest for Hunger campaign will result in four meals. Donate today by visiting harvestforhunger.org. Help feed your neighbors. Cleveland.com is a sponsor of the Greater Cleveland Food Bank's Harvest for Hunger campaign. So I know you guys touched on it a little bit in the intro, but I understand uh, Bill Johnson has some pretty strong beliefs or, or thoughts about fatherhood due to perhaps his background. Do you guys want to delve into that at all? or? Well, if you thought that we were going to talk about Portugal at the beginning of this episode, then I guess you get a prize that I don't know what is yet. Uh, I mean, frankly, he just thinks it's kind of, I guess, sort of the cornerstone of basically all society is really the way he sort of described it. And we ended up talking with him about how some policies in America maybe, um, you know, interrupt fatherhood, we, you know, drug wars and things like that, and, and, and sort of tear down um, what, you know, what he thinks is important about having a two-parent household. Yeah, it's there's a sort of like um, socially conservative critique that he has of our culture, and uh, he, we didn't get into this in the interview, but if you read the book, uh, he criticizes Family Guy as sort of like portraying the the dumb dad who's you know fat and lazy and that kind of thing, um, and that's you know we wanted to kind of try to broaden the conversation and focus on some other things just to kind of see what he would say, and kind of one of the things we do try to do on this show is to try to get people off their script a little bit. So I don't know that we, you know, we asked him about the impact that uh, immigration policy has on breaking up families, you know, when you're enforcing illegal immigration, 
uh, you're separating kids from their parents. And that is, you know, within the framework that he built that should be troubling to him. And so, you know, we just thought it would be interesting to hear what he had to say if we asked him about that. With that, let's listen to more of the interview with Bill Johnson. Um, so in your book, you identify some of the cultural forces that you think has kind of contributed to uh, the uh, crisis that you described about the increasing number of fathers who don't play roles in their children's lives. And so we were kind of talking in preparation for this about other maybe government policies that might contribute towards this dynamic. Um, so we were wondering what you thought. Uh, there's a line of uh, thought out there that the war on drugs and the levels of incarceration in certain communities, especially minority ones, uh, resulted in, you know, generations of men spending time in prison instead of being around with their families and that kind of perpetuating some of the poverty conditions that we see today. Uh, what, what do you think about that? I, well, I think you've, uh, you've, you've opened up a, a, a very big subject, and I think it's one that we do need to deal with uh, as a society, um, because I, I do believe that we're beginning to see a shift in our thinking uh, culturally and as a society. Uh, we're beginning to understand that, a dis- that addiction is a disease. Uh, for many, it's not a life choice. Uh, I think there are very few people that wake up thinking, well, you know, I think I'll become a heroin addict today. Uh, Many, many people uh, uh, stumble into that lifestyle uh, as a result of many, many factors. But, But we're beginning to understand as a society that addiction is a disease. And, and we're beginning to understand that it needs to be treated as a disease. And, and in, in order to answer your question, I didn't put this, I don't think I put this in the book. Uh, it, I, I did so much research, um, uh, but it, there's, a, there's a study that was conducted on the nation of Portugal. Uh, at one time, the nation of Portugal was, was one of the most drug-addicted countries in the world. Um, in the year 2000, uh, the nation of Portugal made a national decision. Uh, a cultural shift occurred. They began, uh, they stopped uh, and they changed their, their laws to decriminalize the addiction. They, uh, they decriminalized the addiction, and they took the money that had been, uh, had been going toward incarcerating and institutionalizing the addicted, um, and they began to put that money into real, uh, customized, no kidding, recovery and uh, treatment programs that worked. Uh, now, they, they stiffened the penalties for, um, for the pushers, for the drug dealers, for the manufacturers, you know, the, the meth dealers and the, those that were cooking the drugs. But they, uh, uh, they, they decriminalized the addiction process. Uh, and, and one of the biggest factors in that was, was getting these people out of uh, institutions and out of jails, helping them to get over their their chemical or physical dependency, helping them to get a job and to begin regaining their self-confidence. And and they produced some some shocking results because 10 years later, uh, by 2010, 
in this study that I saw, the nation of Portugal had reduced their addiction rate by by 50 percent. And uh, and so I think and I mentioned this, you know, I sit on the president's opioid task force. And in one of the early meetings with President Trump, Vice President Pence, Governor Christie, and other members of the House and Senate who sit on that task force, I brought this up. And, and I said, you know, we, we've got to start rethinking how we deal with those that are addicted. And I mentioned the fact that, that in many cases, children that are being raised in fatherless homes are there because their fathers are in jail because of drug-related charges uh, uh, and such. Uh, and, and so uh, the president acknowledged that, uh, that this is something that we need to think about. And we've actually done some prison reform legislation here in the House just a few weeks ago, if you recall, to, uh, uh, to take a strong look at nonviolent criminals that uh, when I say criminals, uh, I mean those that that have been incarcerated because of a drug addiction type issue and uh, and 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 begin ushering them back out the right way uh, in a way that they can become productive members of society. I mean, you think about it for a second. If you run if you run afoul of the law on a drug charge in America today, uh, if you're a single parent, you're never going to get that little ID card that will let you chaperone your child's middle school field trips because you're not going to be able to pass the background check that the school system requires. Um, there's a stigma that comes with it. So we've got to, we've got to think differently about addiction in America and, uh, and begin to help folks that are uh, afflicted with addiction get through the recovery process, but then regain their self-confidence so that they can not only become productive members of society, but become the parents, the fathers, and the mothers that their children need them to be. So when we were thinking about challenging questions to ask you about families, we also wanted to ask, there's been an increase, and it's not a recent development, but maybe you know it's, it's intensifying as far as just the focus of the administration. Um, uh, you see immigrant families where maybe parents are illegal and their kids are, are illegal and then the, par- the family gets separated if the parents get deported. Or then you also have uh, people trying to come across the border and being detained and, and being separated as families, which obviously uh, kids being separated from their parents is traumatic in that setting. So how can we, um, you know, when we're thinking about uh, our immigration policies, kind of try to you know, mitigate that sort of damage? Well, uh, you know, uh, immigration, uh, immigration is a topic that is far beyond uh, the, the, the ability of this particular conversation to address. If I had answers to all of those questions, um, uh, you would be seeing me on, uh, on the Sunday morning talk shows uh, because we are searching for answers to those kinds of questions. I can tell you that, that uh, we need an immigration system that works. Uh, I believe it needs to be a merit-based system. Uh, for years, we have allowed our immigration system to be abused, uh, uh, unenforced, uh, and as a result, we have uh, a lot of illegal immigrants that are here 
Um, and now we've got to deal with that. And in my view, the first way we do that is to secure our borders. I believe strongly that a nation without borders is not really a nation. It might be a territory, but it's not a nation. If you can't, if, if a nation cannot protect their own sovereignty and determine who's coming in and who's going out, um, uh, then, uh, then we've got a big, big problem. But uh, uh, we're actually talking about that right now in the U.S. House of Representatives and over the next couple of weeks, we're gonna be voting on some legislation to address some of that. And so because it's a topic uh, of discussion within, uh, within the halls of Congress, I'm, I'm gonna kinda uh, withhold any comment on it at this point. You spoke a little bit with Bill Johnson about Eastern Ohio, which is where he's from, the district that he represents. What did he have to say about that part of the state? I think it's the sort of stuff that you, I think, hear. Uh, There's been like this fascination with Eastern Ohio and with rural Ohioans and blue collar workers displaced. And, you know, we were born and raised in a steel mill and now it's closed or whatever. I mean, so just the whole trope. Um, But Uh, we did, we talked with him about kind of like this fascination and, and what it was that politically happened there that kind of caused Donald Trump to, you know, the area was already shifting Republican. Mitt Romney, you know, had pretty good numbers there. Um, his district, by the way, and I'm meandering a little bit, but includes areas of like the Youngstown area. So it's not just, you know, straight up Southeast Ohio, but so maybe Romney, you know, it's a Republican leaning district in 2012. Well, Trump cleaned up the biggest Trump swing, uh, in the country. And so, we talked a little bit about um, there's this kind of like larger policy debate about what can be done with areas that kind of like were built up under the old economy. And Cleveland, by the way, like falls under that banner, too. Um, so, you know, we talked about uh, energy stuff. We talked about, you know, politics. So it was, it was a good conversation. With that, let's listen to more of the interview with Bill Johnson. I want to turn the discussion to uh, where you're from, kind of southeast Ohio. We saw it, you know, play a really important uh, role in the 2016 election, and there's been increased interest from, uh, I would say, Republicans, Democrats, and the media. Uh, what do you make of that increased sort of attention to the Steubenville and Mahoning Valley areas, especially after Trump was elected? Well, uh, you know, uh, President Trump uh, carried uh, eastern and southeastern Ohio by a very wide margin. Uh, it was, uh, in fact, the sixth district of Ohio was the top performing Trump district in the nation. And uh, uh, the swing from uh, the vote that Romney got in 2012 to the vote that uh, President Trump got in 2016 was uh, in excess of 30 points. It was the biggest swing in the nation. Uh, the people in eastern and southeastern Ohio, places like Jefferson County, Steubenville, uh, St. Clairsville, uh, Belmont County, you name it. Um, uh, those, those Americans uh, heard someone talking to them in terms that they could understand and that they could relate to. Uh, they felt like people in Columbus and Washington had quit listening to them a long time ago. Um, and, uh, and, and I think they make, uh, they make a very valid point when you look at, at, for example, uh, broadband internet access, uh, look at how many places in Eastern and Southeastern Ohio where young people can't even do their homework 
because they can't get access to the internet without going to a neighboring town to a public library that may be uh, fortunate enough to have an access point to uh, to the internet, or maybe go sit in a Tim Hortons or uh, uh, Panera Bread somewhere in a bigger city where they can get Wi-Fi. Um, uh, so uh, I I think that uh, 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 President Trump's message about making America great again really resonated uh, with people who had felt pushed down and uh, pushed to the end of the line for so long. You know, and it's interesting that Trump did so well there because, you know, Mitt Romney did pretty well too, but relatively speaking, didn't do as well as Donald Trump. And when you look at both Mitt Romney's and Donald Trump's background, I mean, they're actually kind of similar, you know, both uh, very wealthy individuals coming from wealthy families probably never stepped foot in a place like Southeast Ohio until they were running for president. And I'm wondering, I mean, is it, it was it just the rhetoric or was did, did Donald Trump just realize what message needed to be said to Southeast Ohio? Is that why a guy who maybe had never set foot in the place until he was on the campaign trail was able to really speak to those voters down there? Well, I think it was a it was a very different election. You You, you can't you can't uh, disregard uh, the who was at the top of the ticket in both parties, and so uh, you know you had uh, you had a message of uh, a big government and and uh, more of the same. Uh, Eastern and southeastern Ohio had seen uh, their health care costs uh, skyrocketing. Uh, they they had seen their jobs shift overseas uh, uh, because of policies uh, over regulation over taxing. And, uh, and, they, and, they, and they saw one, uh, uh, one party's candidate that wanted to continue and double down on those types of policies. And, and they heard from, uh, uh, from Donald Trump about how he wanted to get rid of those regulations and put the American people back in charge of their own destiny. And uh, I can tell you, hardworking people in eastern and southeastern Ohio, coal miners, farmers, uh, uh, manufacturing workers, steel workers that get up every day and put their work boots on and, and, and work hard to make a living for their families. They, they related to that promise that, hey, I'm going to create opportunities for you. Uh, now it'll be up to you to take advantage of those opportunities, but I'm going to create opportunities for you to, uh, to make your lives better and in the process make america great again and they and they uh they re it resonated with those voters and it still does today by the way what is it about that area that you think used to make it uh kind of a democratic stronghold in a way for people like you know ted strickland uh but now they can't seem to do well there they basically realigned pretty safely to the republican party what caused that shift why did voters you know really in a short amount of time kind of uh, uh, switch the flow? Well, I think it's a combination of things. I, I think people in eastern and southeastern Ohio, even though it had been a, uh, a, 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 a blue district, a Democrat district for a long time, uh, even in those times, the people in eastern and southeastern Ohio uh, were uh, uh, are very conservative people. They don't believe in spending money that you don't have. Uh, they believe in a strong national defense. They believe in the strength of the family um, uh, and, and the very family-oriented folks. And so uh, they saw a, uh, an agenda under President Obama 
putting big government in charge of their health care, putting big government in charge of what they could and could not get to on the Internet, uh, putting big government uh, uh, regulating their businesses out of businesses so that unemployment uh, was uh, was was uh, climbing, uh, or at least uh, uh, you know anywhere from three to five percentage points higher than the national average, and uh, and so they uh, for the most part uh, felt that uh, that conservative Republican values of smaller government, less regulation, uh, more money in your pocket through uh, through lower taxes. And uh, being in charge of your own health care, uh, those messages resonated with those voters. The thread that I've always kind of seen is that uh, the Democratic Party sort of shifted to talking about more social issues. You know, they talked about guns or they talked about uh, uh, equal rights, whatever. And that wasn't the message that people in Southeast Ohio wanted to hear. They wanted to hear about economics and jobs. Is it because is, is it just because Republicans were talking about the economy and jobs and taxes and everything like that, whereas the Democrats weren't even really mentioning it. Is that another reason for the, that drastic shift? Well, it, I think that played a role. I think that played a role. But I think I think people were at the point where they were saying enough is enough. Uh, we don't want another administration that's going to double down on those policies. And, you know, uh, I, I know you don't want this interview to turn into a uh, uh, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton replay, uh, but 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 uh, Secretary Clinton uh, basically said that she was going to double down on the policies of Barack Obama and uh, and and keep them going. And the people in this region of the country, uh, they just simply were not for that. Uh, and and that's the bottom line. And one of those issues is coal. You actually mentioned it at the beginning, being a a really big issue in that district. Uh, do you think the government should pursue policies that kind of specifically target uh, industries that might be struggling, that are maybe a little more relevant to the old economy when you have uh, the marketplace kind of organically shifting to, uh, you know, different industries? I, I, I think that's a, that's a discussion that is underway, and it's, uh, it's a discussion that we're going to have to continue. Um, you know, I'm very much aligned with what Ronald Reagan said, you know, the last thing you need uh, is another government program. In fact, he said in various ways, uh, you know, uh, the, the only thing more permanent, I, I think he quipped once, the only thing uh, uh, more permanent than death is a government program. Uh, so uh, I, I'm, not a, I'm not big in government interference in, in, uh, in a free enterprise market. Uh, I believe market-driven solutions are the better solutions. I, I think if you look at the century uh, after the Civil War from 1865 to 1970, um, a very traumatic uh, uh, century for, uh, for the United States. We fought two bloody uh, world wars. We were deeply involved in uh, uh, Vietnam. We had come through the Korean conflict and we had started that century off recovering ourselves from, uh, from our own bloody civil war. And yet, uh, I think you could make the case that that century from 1865, it's 105 years, but we'll call it a century, uh, from 1865 to 1970 was the most innovative period of not only uh, American history, but human history. I mean, you look at what America brought to the world. 
the, the light bulb, the national energy grid, the combustion engine and the uh, invention of the automobile and the manufacturing processes around uh, uh, producing automobiles that industrialized Western cultures, uh, the invention of the airplane and space travel and landing a man on the moon, nuclear power, nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, internal organ transplants on the medical front and information technology. When, uh, when big government began to come on the scene in the 70s, uh, you know, uh, President Nixon brought in the EPA, President Carter brought in the Department of Energy and the Department of Education. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that those agencies are inherently bad. I don't, I don't believe that for a second. I'm not a no regulation guy. But I do believe that when the, when the federal government began to tell the American people not only what to innovate, but when, where, why, and how, and through a tax code that began to grow out of proportion, uh, uh, picking winners and losers uh, uh, through tax code, then, uh, then what we had was we, we poured water on our own innovative campfire, and we stopped innovating. And so I, I think the people in eastern and southeastern Ohio, uh, they wanted to be back in charge of their own destiny. Uh, and they wanted to be empowered to pursue their dreams and ambitions on their own terms. That's what America stands for. Uh, and, and that's what they wanted. And I believe that that's what they heard in, uh, in Donald Trump's message. So you mentioned innovation. It's, it's that type of innovation, though, that has led to, um, for example, the coal plant that uh, First Energy owns in Jefferson County sort of being maybe on the brink of closure because of competition within even fossil, the fossil fuel industry. So um, what can be done to help, you know, eastern and southeastern Ohio where their sort of strength used to be the the natural resources they had, but maybe the economy today is, is shifting in another direction. Well, the, the, their strength still is the natural resources because now not only does do we have coal, but we've also got the Marcellus and the Utica Shell. We've got the uh, the oil and gas as well. And I can tell you that we need coal in our energy profile. Um, and you know, while I'm not a, uh, I mentioned I'm not a big fan of, of the federal government. Uh, manipulating markets and uh, and and, and uh, issuing mandates uh, to control markets. I believe that that coal and oil and gas and nuclear power are the three big heavy lifters when it comes to providing the base load energy for our energy grid. Um, you know, uh, I I believe in an all of the above energy policy. Uh, I certainly believe that one day, someday, uh, someone will break the code and they will figure out how to harness the sun's energy or wind energy and store it up in, in, uh, in massive enough volume that they can roll it out on the energy grid uh, on demand. Uh, but we're not there yet. And so coal and uh, natural gas and um, uh, nuclear are absolutely necessary to keep America's energy grid uh, in play. And, and as we experience this uh, resurgence in manufacturing, um, we're going to need coal-fired energy and gas-fired energy and nuclear energy to power the manufacturing plants uh, that are going to come back online uh, as America reasserts itself 
as the fastest growing economy on the planet. We're the largest economy. We're over 50% of the world's economy. But because we've, we've over-regulated and over-taxed businesses and stifled innovation, um, we've sort of put ourselves behind the, uh, behind the eight ball uh, in terms of economic growth. We're beginning to see that turn around now as a result of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, and the regulations that have, been, uh, that have been pulled back. Americans are keeping more of their money in their pocket. Businesses are investing. They're growing. They're hiring. They're, uh, they're expanding their operations. Some businesses are coming back from overseas. In Belmont County, we've got the ethane cracker plant, uh, PTT Global Chemical. It's not a done deal yet, but uh, but every it seems like every week we see another positive step forward. Uh, the latest being uh, the uh, the sixteen million dollar infra grant uh, for the uh, rail improvement uh, through that region of the uh, of the state. That's going to help that uh, that project as well. So there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the uh, the natural resources picture. Uh, in eastern and southeastern Ohio, because we're going to play a big role in America's energy future. Uh, you describe in your book just how large your district is geographically. Uh, how do you how do you get around if you are trying to <laughs> you know represent the area and, and get get in the communities and stuff? I think the only thing I haven't done so far is horseback. I think that's the only mode of transportation that I haven't used, although I wouldn't be opposed to that. I was going to say, do you, do you plan on using horseback at any time in the near future? <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> if, if, if I had someone that had one, I certainly would because I love riding horses. But, um, you know, our, uh, our days are very, very long in the district. It's not unusual in my hometown of Marietta, which is equidistant, by the way, from the top of the district to the bottom of the district. I described the district as running an hour outside of Cleveland, all the way down the Ohio River to an hour outside of Cincinnati. It takes about six and a half hours to drive the district from one end to the other. I live right in the center. I can get all the way to the north or all the way to the south in about three hours driving. Uh, so I drive sometimes. Uh, other times, uh, I, I am a pilot uh, from my Air Force days. I, uh, I grew to love flying. And uh, once I was elected, uh, seeing the size of my district, uh, I, I bought a little airplane. And so when I, uh, when I can and the weather cooperates, uh, I fly the district. Uh, and uh, that's not all the time. In fact, there are there are more months of the year that I can't fly because of the rain, the thunderstorms, uh, and the, the ice and snow than there are that I can fly. But uh, it's either it's either automobile or or, uh, or flying one of the two. So Bill Johnson is a congressman and obviously spends a lot of time in D.C. What's his take on what's going on uh, on the Hill right now and in uh, Washington in general? Well, he's one of the more conservative members of the caucus, and you can tell that he is definitely enjoying himself more now because he's got a little more clout. And he's in the winning team now, yeah. which is always fun. You know, he said that, oh, you know, back in the, the six years before Trump was elected, I went to the White House maybe once and... Now I've been there, what was it, a half dozen times or something like that. So you can tell that he is definitely 
uh, very happy with the W, and he's very happy with the way things are going. I, I think he definitely has some hunger to do some other stuff there. He didn't, you know, we didn't have enough time to go quite into everything that he necessarily wanted to do. Yeah, somebody sort of, uh, when Josh Mandel, the Ohio treasurer, dropped out of the Senate race in January, somebody that we know kind of quietly floated Bill Johnson as a possible Senate candidate. Um, when uh, Trump was elected at first, Bill Johnson literally floated his own name as a possible VA secretary, being a veteran and all that stuff. So he clearly has some ambition, and nobody writes a book about themselves if they don't want people to think about him in that way, I guess. Or at least, you know, maybe I'm being cynical, but I think it's fair to at least suspect that might be the case. No, I think writing a book about yourself is pretty much step one for, like, the, you know, moving up in the political world. Like, we'll we'll see who all comes out with some books coming up in 2019 for the 2020 season, but... I look forward to reading them. Yeah. All right, with that, let's go ahead and listen to the rest of the interview that we did with Congressman Bill Johnson. So we want to ask you a little bit about your time in Congress. Uh, when you were first elected, you, as far as I know, never even sought elected office before. Uh, how, how was it when you first got there? Uh, what was it like? Uh, it was, uh, I, I've been in office now for eight years almost. I still have to pinch myself every day uh, because I grew to have a love for our country that's hard to describe during my 26 and a half years in the Air Force. Um, uh, and, and I can't imagine living any other place on the planet than right here in the good old USA. And so uh, uh, I am just so humbled uh, at the thought that I'm walking the halls of, uh, of, of great uh, men and women that have gone before me people like Ronald Reagan and Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, so many, many others uh, that, uh, uh, that sometimes it's a, it's a little bit of an overwhelming emotion. And I never take that, uh, that title, uh, Congressman, uh, for granted. Uh, I'm a servant of the people. I work for them. They don't work for me. And so that's what makes my days long especially when I'm back in Ohio, because I can't do my job of representing them if I don't hear from them. I, uh, I, I do uh, town halls with, uh, with veterans groups, with seniors groups, with high school students, with business owners, uh, business group, uh, uh, you name it. Um, and then I do telephone town halls. But, but I, I spend a lot of time on the road going from business to business, organization to organization, chambers meetings, rotaries, Lions Club, uh, you name it. Anybody that wants me to come and visit and they want to talk to me about the issues that are of a concern to them, I make a way to, to, to do that uh, because I think it's important. So. Uh, it's been a humbling experience uh, to think that I'm participating in uh, in driving the ship, driving, uh, you know, to be in the in the uh, in the engine room of the greatest nation on the planet. It's uh, it's an awesome experience. You know, you're one of the more conservative members of the Republican Party, and I know for a while uh, the conservative faction kind of felt marginalized even within their own party. Do you feel like you have a greater voice in Washington with uh, Donald Trump in the White House uh, compared with maybe a different Republican like a Jeb Bush or a Marco Rubio? Well, I, I think um, 
I think my voice is the same. Uh, I have not changed my tactic or methodology uh, and how I represent the conservative values uh, and the needs and concerns of the people that I represent uh, since Donald Trump was elected. I, I haven't changed any of that. Um, and, and I don't plan to. Uh, uh, my job uh, is, is very clearly to represent my bosses. My bosses are the people of Eastern and Southeastern Ohio. And, uh, and so I, I, don't plan to, uh, I don't plan to change that. Now, have I been more successful in getting legislation through? I think uh, uh, I, I think uh, I certainly have more of an audience at the White House today than I did in the first six years, because in my first three terms, I, I can remember going to the White House maybe, maybe one or two times for meetings that included the president. I've been to the White House since January of 2017, dozens of times in substantive meetings, whether it's to talk about opioids or energy policy or, uh, or trade uh, or, uh, or infrastructure, you name it. So um, I certainly feel like I have an audience for my voice to be heard more, but I haven't changed how I use my voice for the people that I represent. So probably one of the bigger storylines going on in the House right now is uh, that Paul Ryan is going, uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan is going to be leaving. Uh, he's the second Speaker to retire, obviously after John Boehner, um, you know, in the past couple of years. What what do you think about that? What do you think about Paul Ryan leaving so soon after taking the gavel? Well, you know, I, I think Paul's reason for leaving um, are, are absolutely noble reasons. Uh, he made the case, and, and I think he's right. You know, Paul came here as a young man. He married after he came to Capitol Hill. His children were born after he came to Capitol Hill uh, and after he was elected. And so his children uh, back in Wisconsin have always and only known him, uh, and these are his words, as a weekend father. Uh, coming to Washington Monday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday, and then home on the weekends. His children are now up and in high school, and, uh, and he wants to be a more active, uh, participating, day-to-day -day parent in their lives. And, you know, we started off our, our podcast today to talk on, talking about my book, Raising Fathers. I can't think of a more noble uh, and humbling uh, a decision that could be made than the one Paul Ryan has made to go back home and be a dad first at a, at a critical point in the lives of his children and in the life of his family. So that being said, um, it, it is going to be very interesting. Uh, you know, I think Paul Ryan was absolutely the right person for our conference after John Boehner left, uh, especially giving uh, given what we were focused on to uh, uh, trying to get the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare uh, taken care of. We fell short of that, uh, but, but he's done a remarkable job bringing us uh, through tax reform. Um, and uh, and if, if everything goes well, we're going to be, we're gonna be uh, making some significant progress on addressing immigration over the next couple of weeks. So Paul is going to be missed. There's no question about that. 
Uh, you, he's done a great. Who would you like to see as the next speaker? Well, that's a good question. Uh, uh, you know, uh, today is, is in in today's world, in today's digital world, where uh, the problems of our age are coming at us uh, at the speed of light through a 24-hour day news cycle or through a social media network. Uh, the American people uh, are 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 impatient, uh, and and I understand that impatience. Uh, the problems are stacking up, but yet our system of government is uh, is is a system that our our founders designed to turn and respond very very slowly, and so we have some challenges today uh, as to how we make the American system of government responsive to the speed at which uh, problems are coming, and so. Um, uh, there are so many differing views uh, on the tactics. I, I will tell you this, the Republican conference, uh, I would say almost to a person, we do not differ on the goals and objectives that we in, uh, in the Republican love house should be pursuing. Uh, the questions begin to emerge though, over how best, the tactical questions, how best to achieve those goals and objectives and in what sequence. That presents quite a leadership problem to anyone that, uh, that's going to lead with that much diversity of opinion uh, swirling around them. So uh, it's gonna be interesting to see who, uh, who pans out. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has asked me for, uh, for my support I think Kevin has done a, a tremendous job as our majority leader, and um, um, I would be more than happy to uh, to see him take the speaker's gavel. Uh, but but that's going to be up to more than just me. It's going to require uh, the members of our conference to uh, to make that decision as well. So you obviously are facing re-election, but just. Putting that aside, do you have any future political ambitions as far as, uh, well, for example, you kind of expressed your interest in the VA secretary job after President Trump was elected, or would you be interested in a job in the White House, or are you thinking like a committee chairmanship, or maybe running for a statewide office or something? Have you ever thought about any of that stuff? Well, you know, I never say never, uh, because I I, uh, I I walk through the door that uh, that God opens up. Uh, I love my country with all my heart. If I can be of service, uh, I will. Uh, I'm I'm a natural leader. Um, uh, I was uh, I was in in my Air Force career uh, as a senior military officer. Uh, had tremendous responsibilities uh, as a commander. Uh, then as a small business owner, a, a senior executive at the corporate level. Uh, so uh, I'm a visionary, thinker, uh, but you know the, the the windows of opportunity for uh, for making a bigger move. We'll see what happens. But right now, I'm focused on representing the people that hired me and doing the best job I can to make sure that their needs or concerns are are addressed here, and and that includes the the thousands of of young children that uh, that are being raised in fatherless homes. So taking things back to the beginning where we were talking about your background, in your book you wrote about um, 
raising the livestock that you ate. And, and so when you slaughtered a pig, you ate the whole thing, uh, including the brains. Uh, so what do pig brains taste like? What, what do what now? Uh, brains taste like. Yes. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're actually pretty good. Uh, brains and eggs are good, but you got you got to cook them pretty quick after you slaughter the pig. Uh, or uh, or they don't they don't stay too long. Normally, brains and eggs were served up uh, the day after the, uh, uh, the the hog killing day, so it was it was it was pretty good. I liked it. How exactly do you cook a brain? <laughs> you you scramble them up like a uh, like you would put chorizo sausage in eggs. You just uh, scramble them up in uh, scrambled eggs. And, and finally, just to kind of uh, to jump off here, so you you your career was in computer programming and IT and stuff like that. But so you're a grandfather now, so I'm wondering if being a career computer technician, where that rates in terms of like using today's devices that maybe your, your grandchildren know how to use. <laughs> you know, I was I was laughing the other day. I don't know if you if you've seen the commercial on TV uh, of the of the little girl, my my granddaughter, who is here visiting with me right now. Um, uh, and my son, we were sitting there watching America's Funniest Videos, and, and it was a mother uh, showing flashcards to her uh, a kindergarten-age child, and, and they were numbers. And the mother held up the number two, and the daughter said, well, that's a two. And she held up the number seven, and the daughter said, well, that's a seven. The mother held up the number 11, and the little girl said, that's a pause. And the mother laughed and she said, no, honey, that's 11. She said, no, mom, that's a pause. It was because it looks like the pause symbol on her uh, on her uh, mobile device. And so it's amazing how our culture is shifting around the use of technology. My son, I, Nathan, my youngest son, and I have nearly daily debates about the use of, uh, of technology devices and um uh, uh, and and how um, how responsibility factors into all of that. So, as a technology guy, I'm enamored with technology. But there's an old saying in uh, in software engineering: not everything that can be automated should be automated. Sometimes the good old fashioned roll up your sleeve manual process is what keeps the human. Uh, spirit heading in the right direction. All right. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and I know we've taken a lot of your time. So with that, uh, we're going to wrap things up. But uh, Congressman Bill Johnson, we really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you very much. It's been great to be with you today. Thank all of you.